You're listening to a Toronto Centre podcast. Welcome. The goal of TC Podcasts is to spread the knowledge and accumulated experience of global leaders, experts, and world-renowned specialists in financial supervision and regulation. In each episode, we'll delve into some of today's most pressing issues as it relates to financial supervision and regulation. The financial crisis, climate change, financial inclusion, fintech, and much more. Enjoy this episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Toronto Centre's International Development Week panel on blended finance. We're very happy to contribute to this uh, important week for the Government of Canada. Bienvenue au Comité de Direction sur les Finances Mixtes de Toronto Centre. I am Babak Abbasadeh, CEO of Toronto Centre. Since establishment in 1998, we have trained more than 13,000 supervisors from 190 jurisdictions to become change agents for building more stable, inclusive financial systems. Without financial stability and financial inclusion, SDG goals cannot be delivered very efficiently or effectively. We're living in the new normal of COVID-19, where all countries are fiscally constrained and development dollars need to stretch more than ever to build back stronger. Les ressources pour les reconstructions et les fonds qui seraient affectés l'aide internationale devraient aller plus loin mesure que la pandémie se dissipera. This is where blended finance comes in. We're delighted to be joined by a key senior leader in blended finance, John Larea, CEO of Com Convergence, and our good friend. Welcome, John. Financial sector supervisors and regulators have not been engaged sufficiently in the blended finance conversation. It is important for emerging market supervisors to be aware of blended finance tools and be well equipped to ensure blended finance investments are aligned with financial sector stability. We recently published blended finance implications for supervisors a Toronto Centre note, which we hope is the first step in encouraging a greater dialogue between regulators and the blended finance community. We are pleased and honoured to have with us the Honourable John Rongwambois, Governor of National Bank of Rwanda and former Finance Minister and our uh, dear partner in Africa. Finally, we know that the pandemic has disproportionately affected women and their livelihoods. L'opportunité économique pour les femmes et les filles doivent être au premier plan alors que nous rebâtissons encore mieux. We are excited to have Anita Batia, Assistant Secretary General at UN Women, as a senior gender expert in this conversation. Our moderator, Lindsay Wallace, is well known in international development circles. She's also the co-author of Toronto Center's publication on blended finance. We are happy to have her on our team. Finally, we're honored to have Cheryl Irvin, Director General for Economic Development and Global Affairs Canada, to deliver a brief message from the government of Canada. I met Cheryl about four years ago and was impressed with her as a thoughtful and very capable leader. 
A big welcome to all our talking heads. All their bios have already been distributed to you. Toronto Center's mission is sponsored by our key funders, Global Affairs Canada, Swedish CETA, and the IMF. We're also privileged to receive project funding from Jersey Overseas Aid, Comic Relief, and USAID. Maintenant, sans plus tarder, je donne la parole à Cheryl Urban. Thank you very much, Rebecca. Good day, everyone. Bonjour. It is a great pleasure to be here with Canada's friends and partners from around the world. I'm pleased to represent the Government of Canada at today's event with the Toronto Centre, which has been a long-standing partner in promoting stable and inclusive financial systems around the world. L'événement aujourd'hui fait partie de la Semaine du Développement International du Canada qui comprend de nombreux événements et activités virtuelles visant à sensibiliser les Canadiens aux enjeux mondiaux. Le thème de cette année est « Viser les objectifs ». Ce thème illustre la détermination à progresser de façon collaborative vers un monde meilleur. The way towards a better world is implementing the 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development with a focus on inclusive partnerships, SDG 17 to achieving these goals. A key action area under Canada's feminist international assistance policy is promoting economic growth that works for everyone. One that creates good, decent jobs and empowers people to improve their lives and those of their communities. Pour bâtir un monde plus inclusif et prospère, il est important de promouvoir l'égalité des genres. Cela est particulièrement pertinent dans le contexte d'aujourd'hui car les femmes et les filles ont été touchées de manière disproportionnée par la pandémie mondiale. The pandemic has meant women and girls today face even more adverse effects on their education, food security, health, livelihoods, and protection than before. The pandemic has also put pressure on countries' fiscal resources and increased the need to leverage private capital to address their immediate needs as well as future goals. To address these challenges, we know that our efforts need to be creative and coordinated across a diverse range of stakeholders, from innovators, regulators, and financiers who can build the ecosystem to facilitate blended finance partnerships. For these reasons, we welcome Toronto Centre's efforts in bringing together distinguished panelists from the National Bank of Rwanda, Convergence, and UN Women to explore ways of leveraging blended finance partnerships and advancing gender-focused investments. Le Canada a été un partenaire engagé dans la promotion d'actions concrètes dans ce domaine. Après tout, le Canada a été l'un des fondateurs de la plateforme Convergence. Nous croyons que la mobilisation de nouvelles sources de financement, la création de nouveaux outils de financement et l'établissement de nouveaux partenariats seront essentiels dans nos efforts pour mieux reconstruire. I encourage you all to consider how you can take a gender responsive and inclusive approach to your partnerships and efforts towards building back better in order to meet our shared goals. I wish everyone great success in your respective efforts. Thank you. Merci beaucoup. Thank you very much, Cheryl, for those uh, thoughtful comments. And uh, at this point, I'm going to ask uh, Lindsay to please take it over, start the panel, and Cheryl and I will magically disappear from your screen, but we'll be watching everybody. Thank you. Bye. 
Thank you so much, Babak, and thank you to all the panelists for joining uh, today. I just have a few points of housekeeping, and then we'll we'll get to the uh, the session. Premièrement, merci beaucoup d'être avec nous. Nous sommes ravis de participer à la Semaine internationale de développement avec ce groupe d'experts exceptionnels. La discussion aujourd'hui se déroulera en anglais. And the structure of the panel today is going to be in two rounds of questions to the panelists. And after each round, the audience is invited to ask questions. Please use the Q&A uh, function at the bottom of the Zoom. And uh, please, to the panelists and everyone, uh, when you're not speaking, please put yourself on mute. So with that, I'm going to start with the first round of questions. And the first one goes to Joan from Convergence. Um, please tell us a little bit about blended finance. What is it? What do you hope to, and what do we collectively hope to achieve with blended finance? And speak a little bit about the role of Convergence as a key actor in the blended finance space. Sure, and good morning and good evening, uh, as the case may be to all of you. If you had told me five years ago that I would be having a conversation about either gender or blended finance with a regulatory and central banking crowd, I would have laughed at you, but here we are. And not only that, but we're all doing it virtually, which is even stranger. But not only has the Toronto Center dived into this subject matter, um, but produced a great report, which I really recommend everybody, if you haven't already done so as homework for this, that you go back and read it. It's right on point about blended finance. So um, basics, what blended finance is in plain English, it's the use, the, the careful use of money that is not operating on market principles, money that is concessional or catalytic and is there to drive impact. It's a use of that kind of money to attract private sector capital into investments. And the whole point of doing that is to expand the volume and the effectiveness of capital that's going into achieving the sustainable development goals. And we at Convergence focus on the emerging markets in particular where the funding gap is the biggest. Um, the, um, the types of blended finance transactions out there range from the very small experimental, trying to crack difficult subjects by creating revenue lines kind of uh, structure uh, that gets you know, a donor capital and private capital work together all the way on the other end of the range to large transactions that pull institutional investors into uh, this subject matter of the SDGs where they otherwise would fear to tread. And it's that end of the spectrum where I think there's some interesting transactions happening that perhaps are of particular interest uh, in, in this group. Um, th those are the kinds of investors that are regulated by um, some of the constituency of the Toronto Center. Um, blended finance is not a cottage industry. Uh, when we got started, we didn't know how big it was or who was doing it, but now we've been able to record the experience we know that there are, um, in the past 10 years, over $140 billion worth of transactions that we, Convergence, have managed to document having happened and confirmed our blended finance, which translates to $14, $15 billion a year happening. Nowhere near the amount we need, but a large scale of business. We know that there are hundreds of transactions out there and thousands of participants who have either once or repeatedly been in on these transactions, both from the donor side to the private sector side. Um, and we know that the, the structures that are useful to putting this kind, these kinds of money together are becoming more standardized. 
which is exciting because the more standard these structures are and the larger they are, the more likelihood you have of bumping us up to the trillions from the billions, which is where we are. Very quickly, what is convergence? Um, we were set up five years ago with a lot of help, thank you, from Global Affairs Canada um, to build out the field of blended finance. And since we got started, we have been able to generate large amounts of data on the uh, subject matter. We put out knowledge products. If you go onto our website, you can read full-fledged case studies and uh, read things from other parties. And the Toronto Center's publication will indeed be on our website if it isn't already. Um, we also provide training and we curate a community of a hundred or so institutions who are central to the theme. We, uh, among other things, facilitate deal flow among them. And um, we actually have some grant resources of our own to help early stage concepts hit the market. Um, so uh, just to give you an example or two, if I could, of uh, what a blended finance transaction would look like on the large side of the spectrum, where uh, it would involve institutional investors of the sort who might be, like I said, regulated by or subject to regulatory uh, constraints. Just to give you one example, um, there was one that happened in 2019 uh, that was a bond issuance. And it was the first green bond issuance issued by Kenya. Um, and what Acorns Holdings structure did, uh, what they're gonna do with the bond issuance proceeds, they're a, um, a, a student housing developer in Kenya. And what they're going to, what they were pl planning to do with the proceeds was to finance the construction of student properties for about 5,000 students in Nairobi. Um, the bond issuance would never have gotten a credit rating uh, that would have allowed the right investors to come in if it were not for blended finance. What happened was Garantco, which is part of the Pidge Group and operates with donor money, stepped forward and provided a partial credit guarantee for Acorn Holdings issuance. And that bumped it up to a B1 on the Moody's uh, scale. So um, that raised, let me see if I remember, 4.3 billion Kenyan shillings. You can't do that operating strictly with commercial money, or if you had, you would end up with um, you know, pricing that would not be um, something of interest either for the issuer or for, for, for you know, the, community being served. So that's one example. And I can give you more as we go ahead, um, but that would be one example. Um, what is convergence? Um, I mentioned that already. I think we're good there. And uh, probably let me stop and turn it over to our next speaker. And I'm happy to take more detailed questions in a second. Thank you so much, Joan. That's very helpful for, for kicking us off. Um, my next question is going to go to the, uh, the governor. Um, so from your perspective as the, the central bank governor, can you please tell us a little bit how blended finance uh, is, it plays out in Rwanda? Is it an important part of your national investment agenda to help boost the domestic uh, re resource mobilization? And can you help share some, or can you share some examples of blended finance in action in Rwanda? Thank you. Thank you, Lindsay. And uh, let me start by thanking uh, uh, the Toronto Center for organizing this. Uh, I think it's, it's really an interesting discussion uh, and good timing when we are looking at uh, even bigger challenges for financing economic recovery as we come out of uh, this uh, crisis. Hope this should be, we should be coming out of the crisis by before the end of this year. And so I, I'll use the Rwandan development experience to try and uh, bring in what we see as uh, a branded finance impact on our on our development agenda. 
so Rwanda had a good experience in the last two decades of uh, high growth of around 8% uh, on average per year. And this was mainly driven by government money and donor money, investments relinked really to these uh, main sources of financing. But uh, as we move into bigger uh, needs of financing to, to achieve uh, ambitious targets for a long-term development agenda, uh, we think private sector financing has to come in and has to play a key role. Uh, so the, our vision 2050, which is our uh, long-term development uh, blueprint, uh, encompasses or underpins the UN uh, 2030 agenda and has broad ambitions in terms of development. Uh, and like, for example, uh, developing Rwanda into a middle, high middle income country by 2035 and into a high income country by 2050. Right? For those who don't know Rwanda a lot, today we are still a low income country. Uh, so we, we have that ambition to have developed into middle income and uh, high income in the next uh, uh, 30 years. So to achieve this, uh, we've, we've, as I said, brought in uh, uh, private sector financing as a key source of financing. When we look at the need to achieve our uh, SDGs, uh, a study done by the IMF and the Minister of Finance, identify that we need at least 20% of GDP of additional financing in the next, uh, in the next uh, uh, 10 years. So it is in this context that uh, the role of branded financing in mobilizing private sector uh, in developing is really gaining uh, prominence in our country. So fostering a, a culture of branded financial partnership is significant strategic priority in our national development agenda. It is a strategy we believe is both effective and can be shared across uh, different countries or different economies. So over the last uh, decade, we've embarked in a lot of uh, uh, reforms to create an enabling environment that allows private sector investment. And that has really pulled in uh, different resources. Uh, we see a lot of private sector investment in, in the financial sector, in ICT, in uh, tourism, in energy, and uh, in agriculture, which is one of our key uh, uh, sectors of our economy. So branded finance as part of this private sector financing has helped implement projects that require some de-risking or technical assistance with the majority of the projects mainly in the energy sector. For example, in 2019 alone, 12 investment deals were closed in the energy sector. And this had an average ticket of around 14 million each. And this was on top of another two big projects that had been closed uh, years earlier of 150 million each. So if I use this energy sector, one is a key sector for our overall development agenda. Uh, studies showed that where we have energy, the lives of the population change immediately. So as part of the development agenda, the government has taken an ambitious target of access to electricity for all by the year 2024. And as you can understand, that required a lot of investment into energy, into electricity generation. So working with the World Bank, uh, the government was able to put in place a framework that allows independent power producers to produce energy in our country and sell it to the government, which now distributes it and sells it to 
to the overall consumer. So, <clears throat> and also government invests in the transmission and distribution lines. So with this guarantee through the uh, power purchase agreements from government, we are able to tap into uh, big investments in the energy sector. And uh, when I say energy sector, you take it as really electricity production mainly. And we've seen Rwanda moving from an energy deficit, electricity deficit country in just 10 years to now an electricity surplus country, uh, country today because of these uh, uh, investments we are getting from private sector, which was enabled by government coming in to uh, guarantee the, the purchase, uh, the uptake of all this the energy produced, working with the government partners in terms of, uh, again, the risking the, the investments. Uh, some of these big projects have been able to get guarantees from uh, MIGA and the other uh, guarantee agencies outside there. So we, 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 when you look at the, the pipeline, again, we have for, for the uh, energy production, we have confidence that we are going to achieve uh, these ambitious targets set by the government. So this is one of the key, maybe key sectors that I can use to demonstrate how branded finance has worked to support the development in Rwanda. One other example that I would want to highlight, I don't know how many minutes I'm remaining of my, with of my five, but the other point, simple or not really simple, but one key strategic project that I want to highlight here is we are currently investing in an interoperability switch for digital financial services. Uh, this is a switch that will link fragmented digital financial services and make it cheap, affordable, assess accessible to the population. Again, in our effort to have access to finance for all by the year 2024, I'm using year 2024 because that's where they are our medium term uh, development plan ends. Uh, and the government has that ambition of really having everybody every Rwanda and have access to financial services, we think digital channels are the quickest means to break the barriers uh, between uh, that, that, that we allow every Rwanda to access financial services. So an interoperability suite that brings together different uh, digital products is one of the solutions we think is going to really expedite this access to financial services. And so government had to come in working with the private sector investment uh, government put in 60%, private sector investment put in 40% equity. But before that, we worked with, again, uh, a development agency, uh, what we call Access to Finance Rwanda. I think uh, Lindsay could be remembering that by your time here in Rwanda, we, because DFID was key in setting up the Access to Finance to Rwanda. So this financed technical assistance to put up business strategies, uh, do the feasibility study, business plan for this, the costing structure for this switch. And so by the time government comes in uh, with a private investor to invest in the switch, at least we have this background or uh, work done by uh, the support of the government partner. Uh, and this will allow the products of this interoperability switch to be cheap and accessible to, to the masses. And so we think again through one of the key uh, partnerships between government private sector and the government partners, we are able to achieve one of our key objectives of, as we say, moving Rwanda to a cashless economy. I would have many more uh, uh, examples here, but uh, I think I'll stop here for now in the interest of time. I'll be happy to uh, discuss more on this topic uh, if time allows. Thank you.
Thank you so much, Governor. Um, those are great, great examples. And for my, my third question, I'm just going to turn to um, Anita. Um, as Babak mentioned in the introduction, we know that the pandemic is, is affecting women, uh, women and girls much more severely than, than others. Can you speak a little bit about the um, importance of blended finance in addressing gender issues and helping to achieve uh, SDG 5? And maybe speak a little bit about what kind of sectors or investment types um, can be used by blended finance actors to address the challenges facing women and girls. Thanks so much, Lindsay. And first, let me just say it's a great pleasure uh, to be here with all of you today. And uh, many thanks and congratulations to the Toronto Center for hosting such an important panel. Really happy to be joined uh, on this panel by Joan and John. Uh, so as the non-J person on this panel, uh, <laughs> let me start by uh, just uh, saying that I think uh, the uh, issue of blended finance and gender is a really important one, but actually the issue of finance and gender is probably the overarching issue and blended finance within that landscape has a very important role to play. Before I get to the specifics of why blended finance for helping to solve for gender inequality, let me just say a few words about the impact of the pandemic on women, which is recognized widely, but I don't think in all of its dimensions. Um, I want to highlight just three things that we saw happen to women during uh, the pandemic and the three areas where women were most badly hit. And those were income, uh, health and security. Income because a lot of the jobs that were lost by women were in sectors that are heavily feminized, retail, transportation, travel, tourism, domestic work. Uh, health because we saw that as governments rightly shifted their attention to dealing with the public health uh, crisis, access to reproductive services, maternal health, all of those services really fell by the wayside. Um, and then security, because we saw an alarming and exponential increase in violence against women. And so those were the problems that we saw at the inception of the crisis. And 11 months later, what we are seeing is how these particular problems are playing out. And what we are seeing now, and what we fear now, is that there is a big drop off in female labor force participation and women are not going back to work in the same way. Because the thing that has been made really visible during the pandemic is the care burden on women. Basically, the world is now divided into those women who have care burdens and those who don't. I don't know how many there are in that group who don't, because most of us do. Uh, you know, if it's not children, it's elderly parents or, but you know, even before the pandemic, women had three times the care burden that men did. And we don't have the data yet on how much that has changed, but we have plenty of anecdotal evidence that women are choosing not to go back to work. That of course is going to have long-term consequences on GDP, on productivity and on gender stereotypes and cultural norms about the role of women. I fear a reversion to 1950s stereotypes where mommy's at home, cooking, caring, and men are at work. So we hope that doesn't happen. And some of the data that is trickling in uh, is showing that this is happening more in emerging markets and not so much in richer countries. But of course we will need a longer time to actually get the data to understand the full extent of the problem. So I just wanted to paint a picture of some of the issues. The other really big issue that I want to point out, and John, this will be of interest to you, um, uh, and I think to 
people who are listening who are really paying attention to how the stimulus packages are working. You know, most countries have had to borrow enormous sums of money to make their way through the crisis. And these stimulus packages have, I'm sorry to say, been largely gender blind. And that's not because people are ill-intentioned, but that's because uh, in the rush to disperse money and to just keep economies afloat, it hasn't been possible to do the kind of targeting that one would want to do. So of course, some countries have done what are essentially unconditional cash transfers and have been able to reach women. For example, in Togo, um, you know, the government was able to make sure that money reached women because they use their mobile telephony network to get money to women. In India, because there is a digital ID system, and that goes to the point, John, you were saying about, you know, the effects and the, uh, the, the really dramatic effects that digital infrastructure can have on inclusion. In India, you know, uh, the government was able to reach 200 million women with cash transfers because they have digital ID. And so they were able to find the women to get them the money. But by and large, our research, uh, and we have published something called a Global Gender Policy Tracker, along with UNDP, it shows that less than 20% of countries who have stimulus packages in place were had gender sensitive policy measures. By and large, the policy measures have been gender neutral and in some cases, gender blind. So what does that mean for the recovery? It means if we really want to build back better, if we want to achieve the SDGs by 2030, and if we want to use the opportunity of the crisis to make sure that we are building back, not in the old way, but really building inclusive, just societies, we're gonna to have to do something differently. And we have to keep in mind the 50% of the population that hasn't been really thought about. So where does blended finance fit into this? First of all, um, you know, countries now who have been on this massive borrowing spree, A, some of them are going to face a debt crisis and there are going to be restructuring, sovereign restructurings coming down the pike. By June and July, I think we will see countries coming forward saying they need to borrow more or do something else. Some countries will have market access and some will not. And those that have market access, um, you know, are in a relatively privileged position. But those who don't and those who need some kind of support uh, will need to depend on some blend of finance in order to attract commercial capital. Because for many countries, they have reached the limits of what they can actually borrow uh, from the international financial institutions. So they do have to look for alternative sources of finance. And for the, these countries, which may be considered high risk, um, you know, or not investment grade, blended finance can play a really important role. But how do we then make sure that this money is actually going to women? It's serving women-owned businesses. It's helping women get back on their feet. It's helping women rejoin the economy. And here, I think, you know, the international development community has some thinking and work to do. One of the things that we at UN Women have been exploring 
is the use of thematic bonds, uh, in particular gender bonds. We would like to see the creation of a gender bond market. And I'm happy to say we are in conversation with a few countries, uh, particularly mostly middle-income countries, to see that in their borrowing, because they have market access, they have a well-structured borrowing program already in place, when they borrow, can they actually tap into the huge pool of institutional investors and pension funds who are interested in ESG lending? And um, can they then designate those bonds as gender bonds by driving the use of the proceeds towards programs that are actually gender sensitive? So we're actually doing that now within a number of countries. But I am also, as UN Women, in conversation with a number of countries where purely commercial money is not going to want to take the risks that are needed. And that's where blending becomes really important because if we can drive, if we can catalytically use some donor money uh, to buy down the risk and attract commercial capital, then we really have an opportunity for these countries to borrow sustainably uh, many countries have euro bonds that are coming due that will need to be rolled over. So they have to have fresh borrowing. So what we're saying to them is if you're going to borrow, then borrow for gender uh, and borrow for gender and drive these resources to programs that target women in the sectors where they are most highly represented. You asked about what sectors this would be. What is agribusiness for one? You know, uh, agriculture is heavily feminized, particularly in emerging markets. Um, anything in financial services, we need to get more financial inclusion for women. So, you know, that sector, infrastructure even, although it's not something you typically think about as a female sector, the impact of infrastructure on women is huge because it can impact their access to markets, for them to sell, for small businesses to be able to connect supply and demand. So there are a lot of different, you know, frankly, there are no sectors where women aren't really engaged. Yes, there may be a higher proportion of women in, you know, agriculture than some other sectors, uh, but I actually think uh, a blended finance approach to borrowing can uh, result in substantial tangible benefits to women, particularly if you have agencies like ours helping the government identify those programs that we already know of will have a disproportionate positive impact on women. Let me stop there, but very happy to take additional questions. Thank you so much, Anita, and, and thanks, panelists, for that, that first round. So we, we certainly heard about the importance of blended finance as a catalytic tool, some great examples from Kenya and, of course, the ones from Rwanda, and then, of course, the, the challenges, how the pandemic's really affecting women, but I'm really excited about the gender bond idea. Um, you know, and, and just really thinking through some of the great innovations and, and financial innovations to address the, the challenges that we're, we're collectively facing. So we do have a few questions. Um, and I'm going to, uh, the first one is, do we have an idea about the amount that the private sector is engaged to commit into blended finance? I'm going to pose that to Joan, who at Convergence collects a lot of the data on blended finance. Yeah, um, we 
have a, um, a database of somewhere between five and 600 transactions, and we can see the total amount of money that those transactions have represented over the past decade or so. Um, this is a small proportion of the transactions out there. It's just the ones that we have been able to record. And we are seeing an annual um, business flow of about uh, $15 billion. It varies by year. That's the total transaction size. You can be comforted that probably the majority of funding in each of those transactions is coming from the private sector, but we don't have the granularity of data to give you the exact number within. May I jump on Anita's comment though for, can I just hijack this for a second? Um, great comments. And I just wanna go back to what our data shows about uh, blending for SDG five. Um, we know that about 14% of the transactions in our database have touched on gender issues, sorry, 24%. And of those 14 percentage points of them um, have explicitly gone after gender, gender. It was what the transaction intended to do as opposed to just being a, a happy um, you know, outcome of it. So there is a lot happening already in gender in the blended space, particularly, and I think this is because to do a blended transaction, there's somebody in the deal who's saying, I'm not operating a market principles, I'm operating for impact. I'm a donor, I'm a government, I'm a philanthropic institution. So there's always somebody minding the fort as it were on impact. There's a whole lot more to be done for blending for gender. And I, I would, I'm gonna obviously be chasing Anita down after this conference to talk to her more about that stuff. But uh, thanks for the question. I just wanted to, to insert a few data points on that. We'll return to this podcast after this short break. Registration will open soon for our 2021 virtual international programs. The securities program is from May 10th to May 14th. The banking program is from June 7th to June 11th. And the insurance and pensions program is from June 21st to June 25th. Our renowned programs focus on the latest emerging and accelerating risks, such as ESGs, cybersecurity, climate change financial risks, and fintech, regtech, and souptech. Registration opens soon. Follow Toronto Centre on social media or visit our website at torontocentre.org for the latest news and updates. We'll return to our podcast now. Thank you so much, Joan. Um, our next question is uh, relates to how do you increase agreement between the private and the public sectors to and and reduce the or increase the knowledge um, sharing between the two? A uh, sense that the public sector is highly regulated, um, and how also do we um, ensure that impact is focused on uh, the people that need it the most? I'm going to turn to uh, the governor for to answer this question. How in Rwanda, in some of the examples, have you been able to um, to address that gap between maybe perceptions of of you know how the private sector operates and how the public sector operates? Yeah, th thank you. Uh, good question. I hope I can I can. Uh, in a way, when we look at maybe the Rwandan government, they have been working and uh, trying to address the big challenges we had of uh, developing our country from the uh, uh, from the tragedies we had in the mid 90s 
we needed to, to act as, as a private sector organization. Uh, we are government, but when you look at the principles guiding the management of uh, government business in Rwanda, it's, it's really like uh, corporate governance sort of uh, oriented. So it's, it's, it makes it easy for us to, to engage with, with the private sector. I think the most important thing with private sector is trust. And so what we've been doing all along in our development agenda, uh, in our engagement with partners, either the development partners, as I said, in the first part of our development journey, we really worked with the development partners and we built that trust between us as a country, as a government, and our development partners in terms of focusing really on accountability and, and, and efficiency in use of any money we had as public money. So building that track record, uh, when we started really engaging with the private sector, it was easy to, to, to build trust between us and the private investors because we, we did a lot of reforms again, uh, as I said, in the last 10 years, to remove all the barriers, the bureaucracies around government that really make it easy for, for the government sector to, to transact uh, with us uh, to do business in Rwanda. But again, we've been working with our partners. As I said, the World Bank, the IMF, uh, DFID has been a key partner, the, the African Development Bank. And these, the, the trust they show, they are able to act as anchor to private sector that don't know Rwanda quite well. Like when we went to issue our first euro bond in 2013, of the references they had mainly, we had just started doing our sovereign rating. I think we had had about five years of uh, sovereign rating. Uh, and so the, 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 the documentation between us and the IMF and the World Bank acted as uh, assurances to the private sector. So I think what's important as we work with, the, with this private sector institution is the trust and honoring our contractual uh, obligations, whichever, when we, are, we, we enter into any uh, agreement with any private uh, institution. and. That has helped us really to, to, to build uh, that, that relationship between us and our partners as a private sector, as partners' involvement. At the end of the day, it's, it's a win-win situation for the private investor, but for us as government that want to expedite uh, development of our country and improving the lives of our population. Thank you. Thank you, John. Um, I'm actually going to turn to the, the second round of uh, questions to the panelists, just mindful of, of time. Um, and so the first one's going to go to, to Anita. Um, you know, a recent OECD report found on blended finance found that there are few publicly or privately led blended finance funds focusing on gender, whereas there is a number of publicly funded blended finance facilities. And one of the, the questions that this has raised is, is there a perception, and, and what do you think of that perception, that investments in, that target women are inherently riskier? Um, could you just comment on that or, or any reflections on um, some of the challenges of raising funds for, for targeted blended finance, um, gender-focused initiatives? Yes, um, th thanks for um, uh, thanks for a really good question, Lindsay. And I think um, yes, there is a perception of risk uh, around um, gendered activities, which is um, quite um, 
dissonant with the reality because actually women can be very good credit risks and we know that you know if you go back to the early days of when Grameen was set up and what Muhammad Yunus said about discovering that women were actually better credit risks uh, than men you know the the perceptions of risk are very often unfounded and not based on reality, but sometimes on myth and stereotype. But there is now, thankfully, plenty of data to show that actually lending to women or uh, gendered activities are not necessarily more risky than others. However, I think there is a huge gap still in terms of uh, having common standards. We have, for example, social bond principles, but we don't really yet have um, gender bond principles, just to go back to the issue of gender bonds. So there is some work to be done in terms of standard setting. And I think you know we need to work together as a community to make sure that we are doing more to incentivize more finance going towards women by working on standards. I also think that in terms of indicators, generally there is less work that has been done to make sure that definitions of gender social programs and gender indicators um, are standardized. We're already seeing this because we're in conversations with four different governments, four different sovereigns around potential gender bond issuance. And the level of development of indicators you know, varies hugely from country to country. So we obviously, as UN Women, have a role to play in the standardization, but we actually need the uh, development community broadly to understand that we really need to bring the financing for development and the gender equality agendas together more explicitly. There is a very big gap because the people who work on SDG 5 that world is very different from the world that's working on FFD. But I want to say that here, Canada has been a real leader and uh, Canada and Jamaica are actually co-leading this process on kickstarting the you know, new round of discussions on what does FFD mean in the post pandemic period and what are the FFD priorities for building back better. And we have at UN Women, you know, become part of that conversation because we want to leverage that for gender. Uh, so I think there's an opportunity here for the community to work together to build out those standards and to get, as the governor was saying, more trust um, between the public and the private sectors so that you don't have these um, variabilities and that you don't have these arbitrage opportunities that are created because you don't have a standardized approach. Thank you. That standardization is in incredibly important. Um, my next questions to uh, to Joan and really thinking about some of the the challenges of uh, blended finance. You spoke earlier, and I know we we included it in the note. Just the the massive uh, SDG funding gap that's in the trillions. So, what are some of the challenges that are preventing blended finance from growing at the rate that's needed? Yeah, um, your report talked about um, three challenges, you know, the need to deepen local financial markets, um, the need to increase people's knowledge of blended finance so they can use it as a tool when it's appropriate, it's not always appropriate, and the need to be more transparent about 
um, how transactions have gone and how they've been put together. Um, some additional challenges. First of all, standardization and simplicity. Um, we need to get to a concept of an asset class somehow, right? So blended finance, as long as every transaction is, you know, has 42 different features that institutional investors have never seen and aren't familiar with, it's not going to hit scale. We need to be able to roll these transactions off an assembly line where everybody kind of, like in the infrastructure where you have a PPA and you flip to page 22 and you start negotiating there because everybody knows that there's going to be an offtake agreement and everybody knows there's going to be a, a construction contract. We need to have that kind of standardization. Um, <clears throat> another issue, and this gets to the transparency issue that was cited in the report, donors are nervous. You know, um, Global Affairs Canada and all of its cousins, they get nervous about putting their money into contact with private sector capital. They don't want to subsidize people who already were doing investing. And there is a sort of a, a mysterious art of how do you know how much of your money and how deeply concessional uh, you need to get in order to make the transaction go. Um, and the more data we can put out to benchmark a transaction against the last 42 transactions that happened, the better off we'll be. So data, data, data. And anybody listening to this who has a trove of data on transactions that are blended that have closed, who would allow us to look with you at them, anonymize them and publish some findings, please come talk to me. Um, another problem with blended finance, another problem generally with the investment environment today in the emerging markets is COVID we created a step function, massive increase in risk profile around the world for all investing. Now, the higher the risk, the higher the return you need on your capital to take the risk and the less capital there is available. So the naturally the higher the pricing on that capital. So the cost of doing investing around the world just went up like a step function. Um, that's a great opportunity for blended finance, actually, not a, not a challenge, but it means that all investing in the markets that convergence focuses on is going to get tougher. And uh, I think blended finance has a role to play there in closing that sort of affordability or cost of capital gap, um, but it's going to take time. So we do, um, we've been talking a lot about blended finance has a really good role in the recovery, not in the emergency moment, but the recovery. Um, there are already blended finance transactions out there that um, people might want to go back and refer to, uh, again, coming back to Anita's point, uh, just to cite three of them that people can go read about. We wrote a case study on the IIX Women's Livelihood Bond in Bangladesh, a cool example of structuring for gender. Another one is the ASEAN Women's Empowerment uh, Fund. Uh, you can look at wa Water Credits Investment Fund 3 and uh, Synergy. There are some good examples of blended finance operating for women. I do wanna say one thing, again, I keep jumping all over points you haven't asked me about, Lindsay, but they're incredibly important. Investing in women is not riskier than investing. If you're saying that, what you're saying is, I wanna have a blind spot in my investment strategy. I wanna not understand this stuff because I think somehow that's gonna make me a better investor. It's as if we go back to 1976 and people say, oh, environment, that's a cost. It's an, a strength and an opportunity. And when you get to blended finance, if you can speak coherently about gender impacts and gender strategy, you're going to attract the kind of support from the donor side of the equation. You need to get your blended deal done. So I just wanted to park that with you before I pass the microphone back. Thank you, Joan. Very uh, helpful examples. And absolutely, I think, you know, we need to frame things not so much in terms of, of challenges, but really opportunities. And, and your point is well taken that we, 
it's not a, a separate thing looking just at gender. It's it's got to be um, fully fully integrated. Um, just on the the issue of potential risks, I'm going to turn now to the the governor. And as you know, the Toronto Center has published a note on. Um, on blended finance from a, a regulatory and supervisory perspective. As governor of the central bank, do you see any um, challenges or, or uh, issues in balancing your need to ensure financial sector stability and growth in Rwanda with um, increasing investment um, through blended finance tools? Is there any trade-off that you feel needs to be made in that regard? Yeah, th thank you. Thank you, Lindsay. Uh, yeah, as you know, financial stability is one of the core mandates of the National Bank of Rwanda. And it is our role as supervisors and the regulators of the financial sector to promote the use of innovative financial products that will foster a sustainable and equitable economic growth. Branded finance is one of the products that we look at as, as innovative products that are coming to the market that will support uh, the development of our economies and equitable development, as we are saying. Uh, but you agree with me, of course, as, as, uh, as providers of the financial institutions, what will keep us awake at night is the stability and the soundness of the financial sector. So I think that's, that remains key and uh, uh, as the driving uh, force behind what we do. Nevertheless, we are in a global economy that values disruption. So there's a lot of balancing act between allowing certain disruptions that will promote economic growth and regretting predatory, predatory and dangerous practices that could threaten financial stability. So when it comes to dangerous practices, I would say one of the most highly prioritized global concerns from a supervisory perspective is money laundering and money laundering when it's linked to financing terrorism, that becomes even a double-edged sword to, uh, to the regulators, but even to other authorities. That, that's one concern that we always have. So uh, criminal organizations, we, we always uh, become increasingly sophisticated in their capabilities to use uh, well-intentioned channels to hide more uh, nefarious uh, goals. Uh, they have, they want to just accumulate illegal wealth. So we must be uh, vigilant uh, to get investors who engage in these projects thoroughly and assess the motives of the ultimate beneficiaries of this uh, investment. It will be unwise to focus solely on the benefits of the investment will be generated without examining the potential damaging risks uh, behind uh, any, any uh, ill-intentioned actors in, in, in this sphere. So I must admit uh, that Rwanda, we yet to have complex finance projects that pose real regulatory threats. As your paper indicated, there are challenges with the uh, Basel III uh, requirements. We're already there, we're implementing Basel III. Uh, but when I look at the, 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 the types or the kind of projects that we have that really are using mainly blended financing, it's mainly uh, supported by government guarantees uh, or uh, government partner uh, finances. Uh, and with, within our regulatory regime, we attach zero risk to government guarantees. So we don't 
do any charge, any capital charge to any financial institution that is financing a project that is uh, supported by, by a government guarantee. Of course, it becomes a problem when we have NGOs and some other any, uh, uh, NGOs or non uh, or royal regulated institutions. In that case, we might apply 100% haircut on the on their on their on their uh, uh, guarantees, and that would impact, of course, on the on the capital uh, computation of the financial institution. So, but it's our belief that the best environment for investment is not a market devoid of uh, regulations, but rather disciplined market with clear standards that reflect current market conditions. Of course, we don't exist in a vacuum. And so uh, as conditions change, both local and global markets, we must collaborate with international regulatory authorities uh, to create pathways in a regulatory framework that will organize and facilitate blended financial uh, transactions. So as I said earlier, Rwanda is a country that is uh, always on the move and we do a lot of reforms and we, we are very flexible. Anything that we think we can, we, we can accommodate without any big threat to the long-term stability and growth of the country, we are always uh, willing. So uh, similar to us as regulators, we've carried out a lot of reforms. Of course, with regulation, financial regulation, there's all these international norms that we have to abide with, but still we are able to, to be lenient and support uh, in innovation that will uh, drive economic growth and development for our country. So I, I would really say it is, it is uh, not yet a big challenge to us at our level of uh, uh, development, but the good thing is we work with our colleagues across the globe to, to devise ways of how we can handle good products that are coming to add value to the development of our economies. Thank you. Thank you very much, Governor. Um, I know that Anita has to leave us in uh, two minutes, so I'm going to give her the opportunity to respond. I'm, I'm gonna combine a couple of questions related to gender, just to maybe clarify the perception. There is one question that came that um, maybe interpreted what you said it, that women who want to have choose to stay at home should be able to stay at home and and I, my understanding of what you were saying is not that you know if women want to go out to work they should have the opportunity to do so um, I just love you to comment on that as well as a question that came in related to uh, gender bonds there was one sense that is do you think it's reasonable that bonds are gender oriented when we don't know the gender of the surviving members of a COVID family Um, so, so thank you, Lindsay, for those questions. And on the first one, I would say, of course, we are firm believers in women's choices. And, um, you know, um, by no means are we suggesting that women be forced to go back to work. But what we are just channeling is the anecdotal evidence and increasingly empirical evidence that we are getting about the degree to which women are unable to go back to work because of the care burden. The IMF, the World Bank and UN's uh, Department of Economic and Social Affairs came out uh, just last week with a publication that is already showing the uh, differential impacts 
on women's labor force participation compared to male labor force participation after the pandemic. And, and in this particular period, you know, it's not a lot of data, it's about 11 months of data, but it's already looking like this is something that women are reluctantly in many parts of the world having to confront that they simply cannot be at work in the same way because of the care burdens that they have. So of course, if women choose not to go back to work, nobody is saying that they should go back to work, but the, the, the public policy aim and the public policy issue is how do you ensure that there are enough structures, systems, social safety nets and incentives in place so that for those women who do choose to go back to work that they are able to. And this of course means a range of uh, interventions including childcare credits, parental leave, flexible work, uh, paid sick leave, employment insurance, you know, and a whole host of things. Um, so just to clarify that, I think on the gender bonds issue, again, it is not really specific to um, you know, uh, the circumstances of a particular family. This is intended to have an impact on society at large because uh, the ability of the government uh, to borrow um, means that, uh, you know, um, it is able to spend on things that are a priority for that government and for building back better and building back equal because the opportunity in the recovery period is that there is a chance to do things differently than have been done before. So I think in closing, what I would say is, first, I just want to say that I, I really do agree with the governor that Rwanda is a model in so many different ways. You know, having been there and having worked on and um, held out Rwanda as an example of innovation to so many other countries. There's so much to learn from the case of a country like Rwanda. And I think if we can, as a development community, commit to sharing good practices, whether from Rwanda or elsewhere, um, I think we have an opportunity to reach the SDGs uh, by 2030. But if we don't do that, then I think we will really have wasted the opportunity of the crisis. So I think we should just commit to saying what are the specific policy actions that both public and private sector need to take in order to build back equal. Thank you so much, Anita, and thank you so much for joining us. I know you have a, a, another thing that you need to go to, so a big, big thank you for um, No, thank your you so much, Lindsay, and so great to be on the panel with uh, the fellow panelists, and I hope to stay in touch with both you, Joan, and both, and you, John. Thank you so much, Lindsay, and thank you again to the Toronto Centre. Bye-bye now. Thank you. So we're we have a, a few more minutes and then I know our other panelists have to uh, have to leave as well. Um, I just have a few more questions. First of all, a big thank you, Joan, for answering some of the questions that you did in the, the live chat. If people want to uh, to look at those, it's under the, the answered questions. Um, but one question that I, I am going to turn to you, Joan, with is, um, What's different about blended finance? You know, the convergence of public and private funds has always been a key facilitator of economic growth throughout history. How is this really any different than historical models of private institutions working with state actors? 
So usually uh, people color within the lines. So that is the public sector funding will be in one side of an equation and there will be a contract to a private sector side. That's how a lot of infrastructure got built. I, the government, promise to buy your power. You, the private sector developer, promise to build a decent power plant. That's the deal. It's separate, it's contractual. To mix money in a single financial structure puts people into a realm of discomfort. And that's what we are proposing here. We are proposing that government money or donor money or philanthropic money insert itself into the same financial transaction as private sector money and live with the fact that the partner from the private side is trying to earn a buck. I mean, they have a fiduciary duty to make a return for whoever's money they're, they're dealing with. And those things can coexist. You do not need to have the same religion to be in the same transaction. The party that's providing the, the public funds has to ask itself, am I getting further ahead with my taxpayer money or my philanthropic money? By putting my money here, do I get more units of impact than I would have if I just did a traditional grant toward the traditional channels? The private sector side has to say, okay, now that this donor or this catalytic party is in the transaction with me, is enough risk shaved down, is enough modulation of the return profile there that I'm gonna take this bet as opposed to going off to Wall Street and buying another share of IBM. So that's the difference here. We are saying that together you can go farther than uh, alone. These transactions do, as I said, create stresses and we need to, to speak to that and to admit it and to Again, the more data on how to do this right that we can find out there to give people confidence that they are doing the right thing with their um, investors' money or their shareholders or their taxpayers' money, the better. But that's the distinction is that money is coming into direct contact with each other. Great. Thank you, Joan. That's, that's very helpful clarification. Um, turning to you, Governor. Um, what advice would you give either um, donors such as Global Affairs or um, organizations such as Convergence to, to help tailor blended finance in a way to meet local development needs and priorities and help really helping to develop local financial institutions in the local financial market? How can donors and other organizations engage more, more effectively to, to really help um, ensure there's sufficient local participation in blended finance transactions? Yeah, thank you, thank you, Lindsay. I think, uh, uh, as just said by John, one is, uh, apart from the traditional financing by donors through uh, government projects, I think today what, what we see, I gave the example of the, the access to finance Rwanda. I think this is one window that uh, partners have worked with, with us to, to de-risk uh, investments that can, uh, or projects and bring in private sector. I gave the example of the switch where we had uh, the, 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 the partner helping us to create an environment where government could invest with the private sector, but in a, in a manner that the products that will come out of this uh, co-investment will be affordable to the masses and therefore be able to drive uh, uptake of uh, digital financial services. So th this is donor money that is, is used really to, 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 to create a, a, 
a, a product that is now pulling in private sector money and public money for the good of the masses of the of the uh, and the bigger uh, uh, good of the development of the uh, of the economy and the access to finance in general. Again, we see uh, another example I can use is uh, I think it's uh, uh, I don't know, it's through uh, again access to finance one because it has different donors coming in, but we, we've had donors coming in working with the government of Rwanda to create uh, an insurance product that would de-risk agriculture and therefore allow farmers to borrow money from financial institutions. So it just started like uh, two years ago uh, where the government working with the donors, they give farmers uh, a subsidy to buy, like I think they pay 4 to 6% of the insurance cover for their, uh, for their products, for their farm products. And with this insurance cover now, Farmers are able to attract in, uh, financing from financial institutions because the risk now is covered by this branded finance between the government and the donors. So I, I think th there are innovative products coming up uh, from, from different donors to support uh, what one would call really normally original, because originally donors would come put money in through government and support farmers. And that is not sustainable. It's not going to really have a long-term effect on development of the agricultural sector. But now what is doing by de-risking the agricultural sector and the bringing farmers to work with financial institutions, I think that's going to have a long-term uh, development impact on, on the farmers and the country in general. Maybe I just want to use those two uh, examples where we need, uh, and it's good we've seen it within our country, donors trying to be innovative, on how they can work to to, to unlock private finance, private financing that will support uh, the development of the masses. May I um, add a little bit to what the governor just said very briefly? Um, we need to see more structures that pull in local investors and uh, that create local currency-based transactions. Just want to, to, to mention that because so much is happening in dollar-based transactions, and we really do need to step up our game in pulling in local uh, capital markets and, and deepening them uh, through the use of blended finance and in turning things into the right currency that we're, so that we're not introducing new risks. So whatever any of you on the regulatory side can do to make room for the participation of institutional investors inside each country uh, please do it because it's, it's pretty important that we, we get off this um, concept of all money coming from the outside. That's an excellent, excellent point, Joan. And, and just following up on that, do you think that there's a role for um, organizations like the, the Bank for International Settlements to start engaging in blended finance, picking up on some of the points in the, the TC note that the regulatory and supervisory community hasn't really been part of the blended finance conversation yet. There's a, an understanding that there are some uh, regulatory or perceived regulatory uh, barriers. Any, any comments on that? I'll go to you first and then see if the governor has anything to add. Yes, um, we uh, have polled institutional investors and there are certainly regulatory barriers that are preventing them from doing more um, and more with blended finance. And uh, the commercial banks and the insurance companies seem to find themselves most uh, uh, constrained. 
um, and and you're you're straying into realms that I'm I'm not that familiar with when you talk about the the International Bank for Settlements. But yes, I think to the extent that donor supported instruments can be recognized as risk reduction devices, and uh, allow. Um, ratings agencies and regulatory agencies to allow participation of more parties uh, on more flexible terms, uh, we would be all for that. But I, I will turn it over to those who speak with more competency about the public policy side. Governor, any comments on the role of, of the, the regulatory and supervisory community internationally in engaging in blended finance? No, to me, I think that the the papers like one you produced uh, and uh, maybe those that have uh, deep knowledge about branded finance and how the regulatory regime would be affecting its uh, its impact on really intended good impact on development of countries. These are papers that are used when around the BIS when we are discussing regulatory regimes and the, the puzzles of uh, of today, I think this will have an impact on influencing changes or uh, easing where where need be in terms of the regulatory requirements uh, across across the globe. Uh, but, but of course, unfortunately, we see the Western world uh, being a bit too stringent with their regulatory regimes. Uh, you've heard of the de-risking uh, regimes going on. Uh, most of these big financial institutions pulling out of the emerging markets uh, or low-income countries because of perceived risks. And any because of the penalties uh, applied by the regulators for any slight mistake here and there. So, but I think, again, as you said, through uh, BIS, uh, these are engagements that we need to have to, to, to really remove any barriers that, that hinder good financial products that will have a positive impact on government of countries. I think that's what I can just say. It requires really concerted efforts. It requires discussions around the table uh, on where we uh, these regulatory uh, regimes are set in Basel. Great, thank you so much. And I, I know that Joan has to jump off in, in one minute and I'm not going to even begin to try to, to summarize everything we heard this morning, but just to say that we recognize that blended finance is a, is a critical tool, it's catalytic. Um, we want more data. And so if anyone has interesting transactions, please, please share those with Convergence. Uh, Anita spoke to some really interesting, innovative approaches to address the significant challenges um, for uh, that are for women and and how to use blended finance as a tool and uh, you know lots to learn from Rwanda and their innovative um, approaches to attracting investment leveraging blended finance as well as leveraging a number of a number of tools. Uh, so uh, let me just end this by saying a big thank you to my panelists, big thank you to Global Affairs Canada, big thank you to the Toronto Centre, and thank you as well to all of our attendees. Merci beaucoup and Murakozi Chani. So. Thank you all very much and uh, thank you, Governor, for, for joining us. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Thanks. It was nice meeting you, John. Thank you. Thank you.